2: This is a CBC Podcast. So
3: it's 12.37 a.m. I'm in my bed awake because of uh, a bout of anxiety, I guess. Um, it's like a shot of adrenaline to the heart. I wake up like gasping. And the first thing I think is... I have diabetes and this time it was a dream I think I was dreaming the doctor had given me some weird medication and just woke up with this kind of scared panic feeling in my heart. All right, I'm going to try to go back to sleep now.
0: Hey, I'm Acie Rowe. This is The Dog Project. And that is Emily, who usually sounds more like this. My name's Emily
3: Brass. I'm a CBC journalist. Uh, I've been with CBC 10 years and I've worked across Canada and in England. Um, And I used to be a musician before that. Um, And I really love hiking and getting out in
0: nature and hanging out with my boyfriend and his dog. There's something that Emily did not include in that list which is telling. She didn't say anything about being diabetic.
3: Yeah. You know, it, it was quite an adjustment process after finding out that I had type 2 diabetes. And then it just started being this thing that was always in the back of my mind. Like, no matter what I was doing during the middle of the day, I might be cooking or doing the groceries or something, and it would hit me. You have diabetes. And then it got to the point where it was stressing me out enough that I was losing sleep over it.
0: That's when she started making the audio diaries, like the one you heard a minute ago. For Emily, this all started a few years back.
3: So I was at a walk-in clinic. It was something completely different. I really thought I was going to be in and out of there, no big deal. And actually on the original problem, it really was no big deal. But it was, you could just tell in the doctor's face when he came back in that his vibe had changed. His face was serious. And then... um. You know, he said, "Yo, you have pre-diabetes," and I was just kind of like, "What?" Like, I didn't—I'd never even heard of pre-diabetes. Um, he's like, "You know, your your blood sugar's really high. You know, like it's dangerous, and you could die, and all this kind of stuff." And I was just stunned. Like, I didn't—you know—it was just like this is big news that I wasn't ready for.
0: But it was what the doctor said next that set the tone for Emily's whole diagnosis.
3: And then he was like, um. So you eat lots of candy, right? You drink pop or, you know, like it was like he was just (sighs) assuming right away that I had this terrible diet and terrible habits. And, you know, I I love a good pub night as much as anyone else. Chocolate bars here and there. But mostly, you know, I for years have been making an effort to eat really healthy food, vegetarian. And so I was like, no. And he just looked stumped like he didn't even know what else to tell me and he actually just like gave me these pamphlets and was like good
0: luck (laughs) and sent me off. A few years later after Emily moved to Winnipeg she headed into a new walk-in clinic to follow up on her pre-diabetes status and this doctor again asked her do you eat a lot of candy you know (laughs) like do you eat junk food and again Emily told this doctor no. Not really. And then he was just like, well, you got to lose weight,
3: you know. And and I was just like, yeah, I know. Like, tell me about it. I've been trying to lose weight like my whole adult life. And even in my adolescent and childhood years, like weight wasn't always an issue, even though I was a very active person. And uh, he's like, well, you just you got to lose weight. And then I was like, well, that's really hard. And he just looked at me and laughed like he laughed at me. I just, I couldn't believe, like, how can a doctor laugh at you for something that you've been struggling with physically and emotionally your whole life? Like, how is that funny
0: to you? When Emily says she'd been trying to lose weight, she means she'd been trying. She'd been following a weight loss program for years. And after that pre-diabetes warning, she got a dietitian and a trainer and a therapist through a weight loss group at a hospital. And I
3: was taking it really seriously and doing all the weightlifting and everything and just still wasn't losing weight. Like, I just have this formidable metabolism that makes it really hard.
0: So, a few months later, Emily tried a different walk-in clinic, hoping to find a doctor she'd click with or at least someone who wouldn't laugh at her.
3: She ordered the blood test. I came back and, and then she was like, "So, how long have you had diabetes?" And I was like, "Uh, aren't I pre-diabetic?" And and I was like, "The last time they told me I was pre-diabetic." And she put her hand up in the air like to stop me, like the stop sign. And was like, "You're diabetic, okay?" And so it was like, "Okay, that's one way to find out you have diabetes." Like it just seemed so gruff. But this
0: doctor did do something different.
3: She'd asked like what the previous doctors had said. And I said how well they said try to address it with diet and exercise. And she was like, what? What doctors? Like that actually seemed to tick her off that they hadn't prescribed drugs or insisted that I had gone on it. And she was like, you're going on metformin right away. Here it is. Which now I know is like one of the most prescribed drugs in the world.
0: And that moment, it marked a shift. I think it was going on medication because that felt like,
3: oh, wow, you do officially have a health problem. I'd never taken regular medication, you know. Um, But, yeah, I'd say, like, that was the moment that it really dawned on me that I had this serious disease. And that was the moment that, you know, blood sugar went from this afterthought to a matter of life and death.
0: It was also the moment that set Emily on course to tell this story.
3: Well, I realized pretty quickly after finding out that I have diabetes that people don't understand the disease, they don't think about it, they don't talk about it. And that just leaves us all kind of hanging with people not feeling like a sense of alarm about this crisis that's growing and growing.
0: At its most simple, diabetes is a disease in which your body either can't produce insulin or can't properly use the insulin it produces. Insulin is a hormone that regulates the amount of glucose, sugar, in the blood. Your body needs insulin in order to use sugar for energy, but too much blood sugar can cause damage to your organs, your blood vessels, and nerves. And diabetes, it sends your blood sugar levels running rampant. There are two major types of diabetes. Type one means you can't produce insulin. Type two means either you can't produce enough or what you can doesn't work. They don't really know what causes type 1, or how to avoid it. But type 2 is associated with weight and lifestyle. But that's not the whole story. 11 million Canadians are living with diabetes or pre-diabetes. Diabetes is a looming health crisis in Canada. And not just Canada, the world. According to the International Diabetes Federation, in 2011, there were 366.2 million people living with the disease. In 2019, that number had increased to 463 million, a 26% increase in just eight years. Diabetes killed 40% more people in 2019 than COVID did in 2020. For Emily, the numbers were shocking. And so was the silence. For the past six months, pretty much ever since her diagnosis, Emily has been working on a podcast series with producer Bridget Forbes out of CBC Manitoba. Their podcast is called Type Taboo, Diary of a New Diabetic. It follows Emily's journey through type 2 diabetes, all in the hope that it will make changes and save lives. Today we have teamed up to bring you part of that story. Here's Emily. It felt like
3: I was starting from scratch. I found out I have type 2 diabetes, and suddenly I went from barely thinking about it, as I'd done for the last couple of years with pre diabetes, to reading about the disease a lot. I scoured our own CBC website for anything we'd done on type 2 and other media outlets. I found a ton of helpful information on the Diabetes Canada website. I read scientific journals and medical magazines. I even read a 200-page study by the Manitoba Center for Health Policy. Well, a lot of it, anyway. The thing that hit me so hard was realizing diabetes might kill me. It's like I snapped out of this unconscious state of denial and into survival mode. I started recording my thoughts in an audio diary. So the thing that gets me the most is the guilt. I get so mad at myself for not taking the warnings more seriously. Um, I did obviously make some changes. I was trying a number of different programs and changing my diet, but maybe with not enough urgency. So I'm mad at myself for not looking into it more and also just mad at the system for not making me realize how important this was. It's scary, it's upsetting. Yeah, Hmm. tough emotions. I also started feeling pretty alone. I've been noticing nobody talks about type 2 diabetes to the point where I thought I was the only person I knew with the disease. But when I did all that research, I realized that couldn't be true. One of the first things you learn on the Diabetes Canada website is that one in three Canadians has diabetes or prediabetes. That's so many people. With those numbers, I had to know several diabetics. Why didn't I know who? Another thing I noticed in my reading is that journalists do a lot more stories on type 1 diabetes, even though 90% of diabetics in Canada have type 2. Why could that be? The answers to these questions turned out to be so nuanced, they led to this documentary and my podcast. Here's my theory. When you mention diabetes, most people think about type 1 It used to be called juvenile diabetes. People usually get the disease when they're young. They have to take insulin regularly and monitor their blood glucose levels around the clock. Type 1 diabetics get a lot of attention and sympathy with fundraisers, rallies, and media coverage, as they should. But it's not the same for type 2 diabetics. Our disease is also tied to our genes. But there's a widespread myth that developing type 2 is completely the diabetics' fault, a myth that seems to go hand-in-hand with fat shaming. Even worse is when fat shaming makes its way into doctors' offices and the media. Check out this intro from the Stuff You Should Know podcast episode called How Diabetes Works. Type 2 diabetes is, from what we understand, utterly preventable. It looks like it is utterly preventable. Let's just go ahead and say largely caused by being out of shape and being overweight. And eating, like, terrible stuff all the time. Yeah. With attitudes like this, no wonder people hesitate to admit they have diabetes. Worse yet, those statements are utterly untrue. When it comes to type 2, food is indeed a big part of the problem and much of the solution. But blaming it entirely on diet and self-control is an oversimplification. But that sense of shame from being blamed for your condition keeps a lot of us from talking about our diabetes. It might even cost some people their lives. It's hard to get the help you need when you're embarrassed by your health problems. That silence also means people don't learn what the symptoms are to look for or even realize they might be at risk. That brings me to another shocking number I discovered after my diagnosis. One and a half million Canadians are thought to have type 2, but don't know it. You might be one of them. Like me, many people find out after a blood test for something else. It all started to feel surreal, like I'm playing a bizarre game and no one taught me the rules.
4: It's time to play Surprise! You Have Type 2 Diabetes. Our contestant today is Emily Brass. Emily, which door do you want to open?
2: Hmm.
3: What's behind door number one?
4: Kidney disease. 50% of diabetics have kidney problems, and some end up on dialysis. We're just getting started. Emily, which door do you pick next? Geez, not much of a prize there. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's see. How about door number three? Eye disease. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness in Canada. Guess what, Emily? You get to play again. What'll it be this time?
3: Okay, I'm not sure I like this game.
4: I guess I have no choice. Door number two. It's the big one. Heart attack and stroke. Diabetics are three times more likely to be hospitalized for cardiovascular disease, and it's the leading cause of death for diabetics. Thank you, Emily, for playing Surprise! You have type 2 diabetes.
3: The more I learn about the consequences of type 2 diabetes, the more I realize how hard it is to come out a winner. High blood sugar is the third biggest cause of premature death worldwide right after high blood pressure and smoking. But most Canadians can't identify any of the symptoms. Plus, a lot of the symptoms, like being really hungry or tired, tingling in your hands or feet, and sores that are slow to heal, could easily be confused with symptoms of other illnesses, or even with just having a hard week. Perhaps the most obvious thing to look out for is excessive thirst. We'll have more on that later. Months after my diagnosis, I was depressed and confused. I still hadn't met anyone else with type two or not anyone who admitted it, but I really wanted to. I had so many questions. How do they handle their condition, physically and emotionally? Do they ever feel judged? And how did their diagnoses go? Were they
1: left feeling as clueless and helpless as me? I'll never forget, I was sitting in the chair and she turned her chair and she just looked in my eyes and she said, you have diabetes. It, and actually, you know when you almost can't comprehend? Like, like I said, pardon? I said, could you say that again? That's Laura
3: Siren. She was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes by a doctor who was filling in for her
1: GP. And she said, I'm not sure why your other doctor didn't say anything. But, you know, um, not to panic. And then that was terrible because I was like, oh my God, am I supposed to panic? So, I got home and my husband's like, so how did it go? I said, well, it was kind of weird. He goes, what, what do you mean weird? And I said, apparently I have diabetes. And he he was like, you what? And he's like, well, what does that mean? And then I, at least I felt better. Like, okay, well, it's not just me. And I said, you know, actually, I don't really know. I didn't ask her a lot of things. He's like, well, maybe I'll ask my mom. And my first reaction my was like, you're not telling anyone I have this. And he's like, Why? I said, it's embarrassing. Like, uh, I don't, you know, I don't get things like that. Like, what does that even mean? When I'm saying it out loud, it sounds silly, but, but it's in your head.
3: A few years went by and Laura continued to keep her diabetes a secret until she landed a big job. She's now president and CEO of Diabetes Canada. She says coming out as a diabetic sent shockwaves across her social circles.
1: There are some people that I have worked with over the years and I thought knew quite well who, when I, they said, Oh my God, I read in the Globe and Mail or I read wherever that you, you said you have diabetes. And they lean into these Zoom calls like this and they say, um, so do I. Mm-hmm. And I had no clue. And I was like, okay, this is crazy. I have known you for 20 years. Why do you think
3: that is that there's not a conversation about diabetes <laughs> happening when one in three Canadians has pre-diabetes or diabetes? Why is no one talking about it?
1: Yeah. It's a great question. Emily. Part of what we're going to start doing at Diabetes Canada is doing some deep consumer insight work, like to try to get under that. Because I've asked since I've started, are, are these conversations happening better in any other countries? And the answer is no. And when I've talked to some of the uh, major corporate partners about, you know, is this this sense of no conversation happening? And they said it's one of the biggest barriers. So nobody's, and I'm calling it cracking the code. How do we crack the code on talking about diabetes? I still struggle with coming clean on it. Um, But what I've learned at Diabetes Canada is if we don't change that conversation around diabetes, we won't attract as much funds for research. We won't attract, you know, as much attention of doctors to think of it differently. We won't attract the government. Like, so we have to change that conversation so that diabetes is seen as very urgent and important. Right now, diabetes costs Canada $30 billion a year. 30 billion. I mean, it's crazy. And if we don't do anything about the rising prevalence of diabetes, my son right now at the age of 20 has a 50% chance of getting diabetes by the time he's in middle age. 50. So, in other words, the generation that's at university right now, if we just keep on this path without something, half of our population will be living with diabetes. That's crazy. That is outrageous.
3: How did I not know about this? It's like Canada's on a crash course with type 2 diabetes, and most of us are just sailing along completely unaware. I think Laura's right. Not talking about the problem isn't helping in the big picture or in our day-to-day lives. It's hard to press for help when you feel ashamed, and that can leave us diabetics out on a limb, unsure even how to care for ourselves. Okay, so it's bright and early on a Monday morning. The sun's coming up. It's gorgeous, but I don't feel that great. I am nervous inside. I'm really intimidated by what I'm about to do. So I'm sitting in my bathroom trying to figure out how to use this glucometer. My doctor prescribed the kit after a recommendation from my dietitian. I'm going to prick a lancet and I'm going to draw my own blood. It's loaded and now I'm cocking it back. How does this work? It feels a bit like I'm about to roll the dice and I'm hoping my numbers come up. I'm looking for a 6.5. Scary moment. Okay, I'm about to put this in my finger. I'm such a wimp about it. I'm surprised. Okay, here we go. Ow. Pulls it out. Ah. Aha. Testing. Ooh, it's high. 9.5 before meal. That 6.5 I was hoping for would be below diabetic levels. Keeping my blood sugar at that level or better would reduce the risk of complications from diabetes like blindness and kidney problems. But I wasn't even close, and that bummed me out. Wow, so I'm really officially a diabetic now. That is how it feels after pricking my finger and testing my blood. (laughs) I'm having a moment of doubt for my confidence of turning this around. That moment was a real wake-up call. I've learned a few tips since then from the dietitian about eating supper earlier and cutting out late-night snacks. I've dropped a bunch of pounds since my diagnosis, but my weight loss is slowing down again. And it isn't because I'm not trying. All right, going to do a few push-ups here. Sometimes it feels like my metabolism fights me for every calorie. One. I tend to hit a plateau quickly and hard, Two. and that's only gotten worse in middle age. Three. Losing weight would help me bring down my blood sugar, Four. and that might prevent some problems later in life. Part of what scares me is what I saw my grandmother go through. Yes, when I said I didn't know anyone with type 2 diabetes, I meant not anyone who's still alive. <laughs> I called her Granny, but her name was Doris. She was tall, with soft eyes, a bright smile, and a dry wit. Granny was also quite dignified. Back in England, she worked as a nanny in a grand countryside estate, so she had the manners of someone of high class, even though we weren't. After moving to Canada, Granny was active in the church, running Sunday schools and rummage sales, She was also a school board commissioner, and she'd come down from northern Quebec to Montreal for meetings, and she'd stay a couple of nights with us. We'd go for a walk around the park, down to the shops. Granny would buy us a treat for dessert, like a blueberry pie from the bakery at Woolworths. I remember one of her visits when I was 11 or 12. It was the 80s, but for some reason, music from the Second World War was having a moment. I started humming one of the tunes I'd heard on TV, not really thinking about how this music was from her heyday. And much to everyone's delight, Granny started belting out the words to In the Mood by the Andrews Sisters.
5: There's no chance romancing with the blue attitude. You've got
1: to do some dancing to get in the mood.
3: It was a beautiful moment of joy. She even sort of kicked up her heels and did this little shuffle. My mom, my little sister, and I were beaming. That spontaneous, carefree moment gave us a sense of Granny as a young woman during the war, swinging to the latest hits. But as the years and decades marched by, those lovely walks with Granny didn't happen anymore. Her feet and ankles started to get swollen. I remember she would moan a bit at the end of the day as she rubbed her sore feet... Diabetes can lead to poor blood circulation to the legs and feet, and that can cause swelling. It's hard to say some of these things about Granny, even years after her death, but I tried to look away from her feet. It was awkward seeing those compression bandages through her beige nylon stockings. She'd wrap them around her ankles to help bring down the swelling, but they still looked really big. Eventually, she started getting these nasty sores on her feet. Sores that just wouldn't heal. And they kept getting worse. That's something many diabetics wrestle with, especially as they get older. For Granny, those sores were the beginning of the end. So as I was walking into work today, I heard this bird. It always reminds me of my grandparents and spending time with them during childhood, going up to their place in Port Cartier, Quebec, where I was born and I always think about my grandmother we were really close she was like larger than life to me she was so smart great gardener and then fast forward to around the time when she died which I've been thinking about a lot lately because of my new journey with diabetes she was a type 2 diabetic she kept it well managed for decades and um I'll never forget when my mom called and said, that the doctor had called and said, we could keep her going, but we'll have to amputate her leg. Or we could just let her go. And so we all decided to let her go. I still miss her every day. She had a good run. She lived till 85, which is good for a diabetic. But I just I hope my nieces and nephews don't have to make that call
0: for me later. AC here. Coming up, Emily talks to the youngest person living with type 2 diabetes she's met so far and gets his advice for other new diabetics. Sit tight. Asking for it. Subscribe now.
3: From watching what happened to my grandmother, I know there are some scary and uncomfortable possibilities. I feel frustrated at how hard it is to make lifestyle changes and worried by what might happen if I don't succeed. It's kind of making me face my own mortality, and that's pretty disturbing for me in middle age. Now, imagine going through that at age 12. That's what happened to Isaac McKee.
2: When I first found out I was diagnosed, it was a very traumatic experience for me. I remember all the times that I had seen the doctors, and they said, well, when you go, go places with your friends, you'll have to, instead of ordering fries, order salad, that. So it kind of in the middle of high school, too. Just getting to high school, it wasn't a very, um, it wasn't good timing. But I was scared to be the odd one out of the bunch, the one that's sort of like a sore thumb. I did get pretty depressed about it.
3: Isaac is 25 now. He lives in Weiwei-Sicapo First Nation, about four hours west of Winnipeg. Isaac works as a roofer, and he says he's in great shape physically and emotionally, but it wasn't like that in his early teens. His mom, Jackie McKee, remembers those days well.
5: There was always that thought in the back of my head that, you know, he is at risk because my mom is diabetic, her mother was diabetic, Um, Isaac's grandmother was diabetic, and all her family is diabetic, and they were diagnosed quite young.
3: Jackie is also a diabetic. Type 2 runs in a lot of Indigenous families. In Manitoba, First Nations people get diabetes at rates three and a half times higher than other Manitobans. They're also more likely to suffer complications like amputation and kidney disease, and to get it younger.
5: We went on a family trip and he was always drinking something. He was using the washroom lots. My mom said, you know what, you need to keep an eye on that.
3: Being thirsty all the time and making lots of trips to the bathroom are telltale signs of type 2 diabetes. People have noticed that about me as long as I can remember. Diabetics get thirsty as their kidneys work to flush sugar out of their bloodstream. Now I wonder, have I had high blood sugar most of my life and not known it? When Jackie noticed that kind of thirst in Isaac, she started to worry. The following Monday, I got
5: a call saying you need to bring Isaac to the health office. They want us to check his blood sugar. It was so high it didn't even register. It just said high on on, on the machine, which means his blood sugars were over 30, which is, I mean, dangerously high. Um, so the following morning, um, we were in Winnipeg at the um, the clinic, you know, to confirm that he was type two diabetic, and from there, um, you know, they immediately put him on insulin.
2: the The hardest part about being the diabetic was more or less just me knowing, okay, this is who I am for the rest of my life, and you know, I'm not even adult. I wasn't an adult yet, so you know, it figured it to me. It seemed at the time, okay, well, my life is ruined and everything.
3: You felt like your life was ruined.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't very fun because I was 12 years old and, you know, I could see all my friends and going crazy Halloween time and everything. And I had to kind of hold back and it got to the point where the teacher was trying to nicely say it because I didn't want anyone to know because I was ashamed of it. And the teacher said one day that I was allergic to chocolate and right away everyone in the classroom looked at me and then like, you have diabetes? and Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember a lot of tears.
5: Um, of course, when, when you're when you're told as a you know as a parent that your child has a condition or um, a disease, it, it's heartbreaking. They have their whole lives ahead of them, and then you're told that they have a, this progressive disease. You go through a mourning process. You have to mourn the loss of health. So like initially you have to go through all those emotions, right? You need, to be, you need to be upset. You need to be mad. You just have to go through that whole process in order to get to a point in your life where you say, okay, I'm, I'm done feeling sorry. I'm, I'm done being mad. Let's do what we have to do. And you do whatever you can to protect your child, right? We were sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor came in and he sat down and he said to me, he said, you know, you're killing your son. He said that to me. I'm assuming that, you know, he said that because he was overweight. Right. So that always sticks in my mind. Right. Now, if that happened today, I wouldn't let anybody talk to me like that, even though tensions were well. It's about how you talk to the patient and you talk to to the caregivers, the parents that makes a difference.
3: What do you think of doctors saying things like that? Like you said, now you would never allow them to talk to you like that. Like, frankly, I found them to be quite blunt and and almost treating me like with a bit of scorn, you know, like like I did it to myself and you're overweight. And I mean, what do you think of how doctors talk to diabetics sometimes?
5: When we look at doctors, we think that they're highly educated and they're intelligent people, right? And, and, and which they are. However... There's been a lot of stigma attached to type 2 diabetes, and not every doctor fully understands that in a lot of cases with with the youth, genetics plays such a huge role in it that it's, it's not their fault.
3: That misplaced blame can be really hard on kids who are now getting diabetes at alarming rates. 50% more children in Manitoba are getting type 2 compared to 10 years ago, and Indigenous children in this province are 25 times more at risk of type 2 than other kids. It's incredibly complex and touches on everything from food insecurity to social injustice to family genetics. The high rates put a lot of pressure on First Nations families. Jackie and Isaac went through some really traumatic events, some that took them right to the edge. Isaac looked for ways to cope with diabetes when he was in his teens, but he took things to extremes. And a warning, we're going to be talking about suicide.
2: I started doing bike rides. I forget how long they were, but I would vigorously bike to the point where I was dripping sweat. And I do that every night. And then I go for a walk during the day and then on top of school activities and everything. I started experiencing lows because my body's, okay, well, where's all this, you know, where's, where, where's all this stuff? Like, we're, we're missing something. And uh, it almost felt like, um, like a withdrawal or something.
3: That struggle got more and more intense and eventually became a matter of life and death. Isaac ended up in hospital at 18, but it wasn't because of his blood sugar. He had tried to kill himself.
2: I had a very, very, very rough year and I handled it poorly and how I coped with it. And I made the stupid mistake of doing it. And it kind of opened my eyes when my parents had to watch me struggle for my life. And, you know, they had to come to terms that I might not survive that.
3: What was that feeling like to see them in there?
2: I felt angry towards myself. If I had the choice, I would erase that memory from my my mind he told me afterwards this is not the first time i've done this
5: it's devastating as a parent to see your child be in so much pain that they inflict harm on themselves but he was 18 years old for one right um 10 years ago, mental health was not talked about the same way it is today.
2: Yeah, that's the other biggest thing I've learned to push for. I learned that taking therapy made me understand better ways to love myself and be easier on myself with everything. Sometimes I wish that I was a little easier on 13, 14, 15-year-old me. And You know, maybe I'd have, uh, I wouldn't have struggled with it for so long. Don't be ashamed to get help. And don't be hard on yourself, because you're not going to nail perfect tens every day. And then, you know, maybe that'll save someone years of self-harming depression. Maybe that'll save someone's life, even.
3: It really might. A recent Canadian study found diabetics in their late teens and early 20s are more than three times as likely to attempt suicide than youth without the disease. And they're nearly one and a half times more at risk of mood disorders like depression. So hearing that advice from Isaac could go a long way for teenage diabetics grappling with tough emotions. It's also making me confront more of my own feelings about getting type 2 diabetes, as well as the guilt and shame that comes with it from inside and out. You're making me realize that I should find help too, you know, to deal with this diagnosis and all the hard feelings.
2: It took a good, I believe, seven years now of therapy for me to be able to talk about this openly for other people without crying or breaking down. And I learned to take it as a stepping stone, use it as an experience to help someone else. And if someone ends up there, then, you know, they can think about what I told them and, like, okay, maybe this isn't the end, you know, maybe. Maybe if I just push through it today, tomorrow will be a brighter day.
5: There was this misconception that that is all your fault, that diabetes, because this was the message in in society a a few years ago, that type 2 diabetes was 100% preventable. Well, you know, research has proven that that's not the case. You could be healthy, you can watch what you eat, you can exercise and still develop type 2 diabetes.
3: Many of us are in the same boat across Canada, trying to do our best under the circumstances. Like many Canadians, my job is fairly stressful and sedentary. Foods loaded with sugar and white flour are cheap and easy to grab downtown, while fresh veggies and whole grains are expensive and hard to find. My new city, Winnipeg, is also pretty car-oriented, Buses can be infrequent and inconvenient, and pedestrians and cyclists compete for space on the sidewalks, which are dangerously icy about half of the year. My lifestyle is so different from my relatives. Just a couple of generations ago in England, they gardened, did physical labor, and traveled everywhere on foot and by bike, Who doesn't take the car sometimes when they could have walked or picked up fast food instead of taking time to make something healthier? We all face the same challenges and temptations, yet only some of us end up with type 2 diabetes, not to mention a lot of people who get it have been slim their whole lives.
5: So I think that is the wrong message, that it is 100% preventable. And I think some of the doctors still have that impression
3: That was definitely my experience, and it seems to be the same for lots of people dealing with the healthcare system. One study found about 75% of surgeons surveyed felt they'd done a good job talking to their patients, but only 21% of their patients rated their doctor's communication as satisfactory. That's pretty shocking. I started wondering how we might bridge that communication gap so new diabetics don't feel as confused and helpless as I did. I was so upset, I went straight to the top. Dr. Catherine Smart is president of the Canadian Medical Association. To be honest, I was pretty nervous to talk to another doctor. I was afraid I might be setting myself up for another dose of guilt and shame. I told her about the time I tried to explain to a doctor how hard it is to lose weight. He laughed at me, like he
6: laughed in my face. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry, Emily, that that was your experience. You know, I can really hear in your voice how difficult that was for you. And, and I'm, all I can say is I'm just really sorry that happened.
3: Thank you. That and, means a lot. It really does.
6: That's awful. Yeah. I think, you know, what you're talking about is, is a lot of people's experience in terms of um, just sometimes a lack of appreciation of how challenging things like weight loss are. Sometimes as physicians, we throw that out there as a treatment option number one, without any resources in terms of how to do that, but also without the recognition that, you know what, the data really shows that you, most people don't actually successfully lose weight over the long term. It's actually really, really hard to do that. Um, and, you know, what you were able to achieve losing 30 pounds, a uh, healthy diet, and and that level of exercise is fantastic for your health. And, and I think sometimes we need to be better at what we're recommending and and recognizing, you know, not everybody is going to be really slim. And even when people are eating really healthy and and exercising, not everyone has has that as an outcome. And certainly if you talk to physicians who are experts in weight management and issues around weight They'll very much tell you that, that we're having a lot of the wrong conversations and it's an area in medicine that we need to become a lot more knowledgeable as providers so that we're actually helping people achieve health and not just making people feel bad about themselves, which, you know, I'm sorry to hear it sounds like that's what happened with you.
3: Well, thank you. I I appreciate hearing that. And, And it's true. You're right. It is just so hard for some people, easier for other people. Right. We're all different.
6: Of course, you know. I don't think shame has any place in the delivery of healthcare. You know, I, I don't know anyone who's ever responded to being shamed in a way that was productive. Shame is underlies so much of why people have suffering to begin with. So I think that's something where you're going to see a shift, um, and I think it's long overdue um, because you know making people feel bad about themselves is not is not helpful. Different patients have different capacity as well, right? Depending who you are what your background is, what your life situation is, you may have more or less capacity to really engage in becoming healthy.
3: Now that hits a nerve. Dr. Smart is pinpointing something fundamental to understanding diabetes, something I've learned since my diagnosis. Diabetes is not just an individual issue, but
6: a social issue. And that's where we get into things like social determinants and other things around privilege that impact what people can and cannot do because it doesn't look the same for everybody.
3: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Now research has shown things like your genes, your environment, stress, you know, sleep deprivation, racism, colonization, all these things are factors that contribute to uh, type 2 diabetes. And I mean, how would a doctor communicate with someone who's struggling with these things that are out of their control?
6: Yeah, I think that gets to one of the root causes of burnout or what we'll sometimes call you know, the worst part of burnout is when it turns into moral injury for physicians is exactly what you just described when we're faced uh, with patients who have things that are clearly negatively impacting their health, but they can't be changed. And a lot of those things are things you alluded to, colonialism, racism, intergenerational trauma. You know, childhood adverse experiences. We know that those things set up that trajectory for that person's health, not only their mental health, but very much their physical health. As you said, genetics, epigenetics, your genes can change from these experiences. And that's pretty
3: eye opening. Your environment and the things that happen to you affect not just your mental health, but
6: your physical health too. That's frustrating for patients and doctors. What's tough, I think, is when you're faced with those things. You know, often all you can do really is provide compassion because we can't always give someone a different life. And I think that is sometimes what I find, in, you know, in my own work, very heartbreaking. And someone's in front of me and I kind of know really I don't have the things that they need to be healthy. And I think a lot of what drives that is, is the systems that we have to work in that don't work. There's not enough care providers in this country. That's clear. People are under constant pressures to do more care for more patients, which means less time fewer resources. So much of what patients need aren't funded. So pharmaceuticals, therapy, dietitians, exercise, physio, OT, all these things are not funded. So many people can't access them. You know, that that's hard as a provider, you want your patient to do well. you want them to be healthy, happy to feel supported. But when you're the system you're in doesn't provide any of that, you know, what are you really supposed to do? Dr. Smart says 5
3: million Canadians don't have a regular doctor and says that can have serious consequences
6: for type 2 diabetics. What I've heard you say is, you know, both these visits you had were at a walking clinic. And, And I think what underscores your experience is a huge issue in our system right now is is the number of people who don't have a regular care provider. Um, Because at the heart of any management of a long term chronic condition is relationship with the person caring for you. That is the heart of what family doctors do, right? They, They know you, they know your story, who you are, and they can help you situate what you're dealing with within the context of your life. And when you don't have that relationship with a healthcare professional, I think, unfortunately, you don't get the same quality of care. And, you know, that's not just my opinion. That's, we know that. That's what the data shows. I did get that feeling after visiting the walk-in
3: clinics that I was this somewhat anonymous person, just one of dozens they would see that day. It was the same for a lot of the diabetics I've met since my diagnosis, including Laura and Jackie's son, Isaac, Fortunately, Ottawa is finally taking steps towards addressing Canada's diabetes crisis. Parliament has just passed a bill to establish a national strategy on diabetes, something Diabetes Canada has been calling for for years. But in the meantime, what about my strategy? Like so many others, I didn't want to talk about my type 2 diabetes because I was conditioned to believe it's all my fault. I now know that it's way more complicated than that. It's not a question of fault or blame. It's also about how we live as a culture, the systems that feed us, and where healthcare puts the money. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't try to improve my own health while Canada figures out a strategy for this full-on diabetes epidemic. Research shows the strongest predictor of whether diabetics succeed at making health and lifestyle changes is family and social support. And health experts say making your goals public makes you more accountable and that strengthens your commitment. So I gave it a shot, mustered up some courage and told two of my best friends from work, Shanna Lee and Colton. So, yeah, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I think I'm going to jog a 10K to raise money for Diabetes Canada.
0: That's amazing. I, I would do that with you. What? If you do it, I'll do it. Oh, my
3: gosh. Oh, yeah, I'll come in, too, for sure. What? you yeah, I'll go for a run oh my god you guys are so nice thank you oh it just seems like a fun sunday afternoon more than anything for a good cause yeah a good cause <laughs> and we want to support you we care about you taboo. team taboo <laughs> i love it <laughs> right, so. that plan is so far out of my comfort zone that it took me a while to commit to be honest jogging makes me feel a bit goofy you know panting heavily my body lumbering down the track. I still haven't hit my stride when it comes to running, but I have noticed when there's eyes on me, I try harder. I'm feeling pretty blown away with emotion right now, feeling really positive. <laughs> it might sound sad, but it's, I'm so touched. Um, it's one of the scariest things I'll ever have to publicly commit to and they both said they would train with me and do it with me, and it's so beautiful. It's just like, wow, that's one of the nicest things people have done for me ever, you know? So, wow, great friends. My friends and I picked a date, Grandparents' Day, in honor of my granny, and I've been training three times a week, My goal is to jog a quarter of the 10K, enough to be challenging, but also realistic. Okay, gotta pick the right socks. I don't want them slipping down. So it's the morning of the 10K. I just had a nice bowl of oatmeal with nuts and raspberries, and I'm dressed in my best running clothes, which is just a t-shirt and shorts. I'm nervous. It's something I've never done before. This is a a big deal. Yo! All right, good to see you. Get ready. (laughs) This is a really big track. It is, I know 25 (laughs) sounds like not much, but look around, this is huge. (laughs) We can do it.
1: We can do this. No, we got this. One, two,
3: three, go! <laughs> That's getting hot and hard. So I'm going to wait for them to catch up a little. Hey, look at you! You Excellent job! <laughs> We're back together again. How you guys feeling? <laughs> We're getting close to halfway. Or... Close to forty percent. I'm getting my way around. It's the last band. Hey. <laughs> go! Over the line. <laughs>
4: yeah! Woo!
3: So I'm back at my car. Ten K is over, and I'm just so proud of myself that i did jog the quarter of the course i was really thinking maybe i wouldn't make it and i did it and it was actually with plenty of energy to spare and we raised more than 1100 for diabetes canada the goal was 500 we more than doubled it just great hearing that excitement in my voice still makes me smile it's funny I still feel a sense of loss from diabetes, like I'll never go back to being the person I was and I'm in this race for life. But that winning feeling from finishing the 10K stuck with me for days. Just thinking about everything in my mind and how it went and you know, I did quite a bit of running and that's not something I would have been able to do a month and a half ago even. It's funny, diabetes is a setback, but it's also an opportunity to get better. Funny little
0: paradox there. That doc was produced by Emily Brass and Bridget Forbes with me, A.C. Rowe. Special thanks to Iris Uday, Janice Moeller, and Colton Hutchinson. Remember that song Emily's granny danced to on the sidewalk? That was In the Mood, written by Joe Garland, Jimmy Dale, Wingy Manone, and Andy Razov. The Andrews sisters performed it, and it was released by Decca Records. Emily is a CBC journalist based in Winnipeg, and today's episode was inspired by her podcast. It's called Type Taboo, Diary of a New Diabetic. It follows Emily as she meets a range of people with type 2 diabetes from ages 17 to 76 who help her along her journey. She looks for solutions to the diabetes crisis in unexpected places. From the inner city and suburbs of Winnipeg, to beautiful Fisher River Cree Nation in Manitoba's Interlake region. You should check it out to hear the rest of Emily's story and more of what's being done to tackle diabetes in Canada. Type Taboo is out on Monday, November 15th. You can find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you are listening to this podcast. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Sherry Okeke, Allison Cook, Tanara McLean, Joan Weber, and me, Althea Manasin is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm A.C. Rowe. Thanks for listening.
2: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.